Welcome to the New Books Network. In today's interview, I am talking with Dr. Lee Burrows about her new book, Empowering Mindfulness for Women. Her book is centered around a five-day intensive mindfulness course attended by eight women from different backgrounds. The reader is invited to imagine they are actively participating in the teaching and learning moments and turning points encountered in the teaching and learning process. The program is organized around themes such as making space for mindfulness, safeguarding mindfulness for women, engendering mindfulness, mindfulness dreaming, and a mandula of wisdoms. Evocative accounts of experience bring to life the woman's growing awareness that mindfulness can be both a separate practice and a natural part of life. They discover that it can help them to nurture what they have neglected in themselves by not tapping into the full spectrum of their experience. Each chapter provides useful follow-up activities and questions for individual or group reflection, journaling, sharing, and conversation. Dr. Lee Burroughs is Senior Lecturer at the College of Education, Psychology, and Social Work at Flinders University in Australia. She has been teaching, researching, and publishing on mindfulness for over a decade, but believes she was practicing mindfulness from a young age without realizing it. She has a particular interest in assisting women and men to access the empowering potential of a full spectrum of mindfulness possibilities, rather than being locked into limiting binaries of masculine-feminine, east-west, spirit-nature, mind-body, and active-passive. So, hello everyone. This is Elizabeth Cronin, a host for the New Books Network. And today, I'm very excited to be talking with Dr. Lee Burroughs, the author of Empowering Mindfulness for Women. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's fabulous to be talking to you. I've listened to you, uh, your interviews before on the wonderful New Books Network. And um, it, I just think the whole organisation seems to be a really wonderful thing. You're doing this fabulous service for authors, these wonderful conversations. Um, as I mentioned to you before, I think I love the one you did with Anne Cushman and I bought her book immediately after the interview. And, and I referenced her quite a bit in my book, I saw that. I saw that. That was wonderful and obviously yeah. obviously meant a lot to see that. That was that was really great. Well, yeah, I love the way she brought the human, the real, real person side to, to mindfulness, I think. Um, you know, where the bit where she said she's burning rubber when she's running late to uh, teach a yoga class and just that that warmth and energy and realness. And I think you know, I just think we really need that in, in the mindfulness space. So it's interesting because the book title is Empowering Mindfulness for Women. So I'm wondering if you'll back up a little bit. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to write this book with this title. Yeah, I think the title is important because it's kind of, I wanted to, 
to be part of the movement of, of mindfulness evolving and not necessarily about empowering women only but but strengthening mindfulness itself to be more inclusive. And I think there's lots of elements that came in to play with the book. Um, my last book for Rutledge was um, called Safeguarding Mindfulness and um, in, I write in there about this incredible spontaneous moment that happened in a mindfulness class once at the university where I had people from so many different um, cultural backgrounds. There was someone from Sri Lanka, Japan, India, um, Singapore, Tibet, um, Nepal, Germany, America, Australia. It was just incredible. And they some had this, this conversation, something they picked up after my lecture in the morning. We got onto this, or well, they got onto this whole conversation about uh, debating self. And uh, there was also somebody that was the Hindu. Hindu and Buddhism were coming, coming together and someone, the, the conversation became about self and no self in um, in mindfulness traditions. And this, this beautiful uh, conversation welled up in the people and it was something, like something had just arisen from this space that had been created. And, and I felt there was an energy to that that um, went beyond some of the mindfulness descriptions I've read and some of the mindfulness research that I've read. It had a real life to it. And then I presented on that. A colleague invited me to present on this, my work with international students in mindfulness. And he, um, I quoted him in my book because he made a lovely comment about um, the way I presented about it and included the people in the presentation was he said it's like a live case study of the pedagogy that you've come to embrace. And I kind of really thought about his generous comment and began to see that that was what I wanted to bring through in this book was um, that I'm in it and I'm the teacher and that is really important but some of what I'm in it, some of my role is implicit and is um, about holding the space and me being in, in a space of mindfulness myself and creating this environment and then letting um, what would come come from the women in the group and they're all based on different women that I've worked with over the last three or so years. Um, so the, I, think, I think the book came out of this desire to, to, to bring to life what goes on, what can go on in a mindfulness course or class. And I'd also, I'd had this background, I'd always loved reading accounts of retreats um, spiritual teachers leading, um, you know, a week-long retreat um, and what happened and the different issues that arose and, um, you know, people's um, enlightened moments and people's moments of struggle. Um, and I'd, I guess as I used to be an English teacher, um, I had spent time in retreat with my own um, teacher, Barry Long, an Australian mindfulness spiritual meditation teacher and various things that happened in that space with him um, as we sat with him we didn't they weren't silent retreats he would well we'd have short periods of silence but he would speak and he would transmit this amazing energy into the space 
um, and we would be held in that space and, and things arose. It wasn't so much about, there were no specific instructions about witnessing thoughts, feelings and sensations or we more just sat with him and were held in a space of stillness energetically and things would arise, experiences, phenomenon, you know, so I kind of felt I'd had so much of that experience and I felt as a teacher that I, in the university, that I could sort of hold the space too to the degree that I'm able to. And I felt that that wasn't really coming through in a lot of what I read, especially, you know, I struggle, I guess, between the, in thinking about this this interview, I've realised I've kind of got this struggle between the scholar in me and the mystic in me. I, uh, I kind of have different phases of my life. I've been more one than the other. Um, and I, I think another impetus with the book was feeling that I'd become a little dry at the university with focusing so much on, I guess it's the same in the States as well. Everywhere it seems to be that academics are having to prove themselves by bringing in research funding and publishing in particular types of journals. Um, there seems to be more and more pressure on, on a more quantitative style of research, I guess, the sort that you'll get funded for, uh, very outcomes-based. And, and I had begun to feel somewhat under pressure um, and a little vulnerable and a little perhaps even a little burnt out. And I had a dream which I write about in the book where I was in a committee meeting, an education committee meeting, and um, having a very dry conversation, well, I thought it was dry, <laughs> about research funding and types of journals to publish in. And um, I'd felt a little bit out of place in that meeting and uh, that night I had a dream that um, on our long committee meeting in the uh, table in the room we all sat around like a kind of a we were, we were in a company or something like a boardroom and on the table appeared this head um without a body it just was a very strange dream I could this 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 head sitting on the table and it started to move it's a bit grotesque really it started to move and it started to almost fall off the table and I, I reached out to try and save it and it manifested this tiny little body without size male genitalia and hands. And um, I um, thought about the dream a lot. It was a really powerful dream, and I think there's, there's probably lots in it, but at the time I think I took it as a bit of a sign that I was um, heading down perhaps a more masculine path and neglecting my feminine side. Um, in my research, um, getting too caught up in the performative aspect of university. So um, I felt I needed to come back to my more spiritual roots, I guess. Um, and I'd spent a lot of time as a younger woman. Um, really, I focused on meditation when I was a young mum, I had children at home, but there was a lot of meditation, a lot of reading of spiritual books, uh, Oh, that was my main focus, I think, along with my children, but that all was part of it really. Um, and I didn't go into teaching until my 30s and I started off in a Steiner school, a Waldorf school, which had a, a very lovely spiritual underpinning. So in some ways I 
that was a good transition for me um, to be able to to bring that spiritual dimension through the curriculum. But then um, I ended up working with um, had some really tricky children that I worked with, and um, ended up moving into the the state system as a statewide advisor because something something was happening with children that I was working with. Um, they were improving in ways that other people didn't really think were possible. And so I got asked to take this statewide position across South Australia, um, advising, working with schools um, and parents with kids with learning and emotional difficulties. And everything sort of accelerated from there, I think. It was a very busy and demanding job. I was seconded to the university. Um, um, I started doing my own research. You know, it was said to me, you should come to the university, you should do your PhD. And um, it all kind of happened so quickly, I think. I did my PhD, I went to the university. And I think when I had this dream, it was kind of like a realisation that I'd perhaps... I'd gone out in the world and I'd had some success, but I'd perhaps left some part of myself behind. And so the book's been this incredible journey, I think, of um, reconnecting with that part of myself, slowing down, being really present and really, um, you know, I'd been conscious. Another impetus for the book was that I'd been conscious with my women students in the postgraduate courses, just how stretched they were, how busy they were. They were juggling, um, you know, family, study, work. They were stressed. They were feeling like they weren't succeeding in any area um, enough. Um, And I wanted to sort of try and understand that, I guess. And and they, they were saying things like they were too busy to practice mindfulness and it was a bit like the mindfulness course was just another thing on top of what they already had and a lot of them also said that they had tried mindfulness and it didn't work for them and they said it was another thing to fail at. Um, so I was really interested in kind of learning more about that phenomena and kind of um, trying to tailor the mindfulness activities more for the for individuals, which was what had been my path that I had always connected quite easily with the kinds of activities that I wanted to do. Um, yeah, so I think there's lots and lots of different things came together in the writing of this book. And I had this wonderful opportunity with Rutledge, who've been fantastic, because having written one book with for them, I think I felt a little braver with the next one, just to be a bit more creative, perhaps. Nice, nice. Mm. You know, I think what stands out about the book, because, you know, for listeners, for listeners sake, you've written a book that really walks the reader through. It's if the reader is a participant in this mindfulness program that you create. It goes over a series of days, covers a series Mm -hmm. of subjects, but you share with them the activities that you're doing and the the conversations that take place. And what I'm hearing from you now is that your own, your own struggles with being a very busy woman straddling both a mystical or spiritual life. And then this Mm -hmm. very performative academic life, you take, Mm -hmm. you bring that to the desire to write something different. And then the challenge that I think you're addressing, which is if women are going to sit and meditate, or if they're going to find ways to be more mindful in their life, we have to factor in 
that their lives are set up differently, that the priorities for women can, can be quite different. And so maybe you could talk a little bit more about that because that really comes through and, and the dilemmas that you've faced yourself personally are, you're very heartfelt and sharing them in the book. So, so readers Mm. will be able to, to um, hear what you're saying about that in more detail. Yes, because I think there's a lot of commonality around women's experiences, isn't there? Even if we've had different pathways, there's there's a lot we share. And, you know, when I'd hear women with new babies say they weren't able to to meditate, and I I feel so sad that um, they were trying to fit into some kind of mould and yet another thing that they should do. It's been kind of quite freeing, actually, because in the last mindfulness intensive I taught in um, a couple of months ago, um, one woman, had, well, she'd written to me in an email saying that when she read my book because I made um, a PDF copy of it available to students who wanted to read it, it hadn't been published yet, but she said when she, she read it, she realised that when she ironed, that was her mindfulness. And um, she wrote about it so beautifully that I asked her to share it with the group. She's a really lovely woman. She's Greek. She's just incredibly, she makes the most amazing olives and preserved olives. And um, beautiful woman. And she read this piece out about mindful ironing. And then it opened up. Somebody else talked about cleaning her daughter's stove as a mindful experience. And it was um, an act of service to her daughter. And I mean, ironing and cleaning stoves are not my thing, definitely not not my thing in the sense I'm not particularly good at that sort of thing, but I love the way it it seems to be creating permission for perhaps some things that women have been taught to devalue about women's experience. Uh, And being with babies, one one woman wrote this beautiful reflection about um, being snuggling with her toddler and, and feeling, you know, her eyelashes and um, the gorgeous hue of her skin. And um, and yet, as you know, I've got the character in the, of course, you know, a student, a participant in the book who who says she she likes shoot 'em up games and, you know, let's not get too airy-fairy, she says to me. Um, and she likes kind of, I use the terminology of yin and yang because I think that's quite liberating. Because, you know, some of the traditional mindfulness work, I think, does position, you know, some of the more international historical work, I think, has positioned women in quite traditional ways. So I just wanted to open it up that we, we, um, we need to make mindfulness kind of um, suit our lifestyles, not, not try, us try and fit in with, you know, with set procedures or manuals or... Um, and, I mean, some people like, love the structure and they're very happy with the traditional approach, but it did strike me that so many women told me they, they, they weren't able to, to meditate. Well, and something you've already shared, two little vignettes you, you mentioned are the power of the experience of just being with your meditation teacher, Lisa Berry mm. uh, Lang, and how just that you didn't need instruction, just being in his presence. There was, that was an experience. And then you also talked about the experience of being with that, that group, that very diverse group of women and how something. So, and again, I think it's, 
it's the idea for me about mindfulness meditation is really finding a way back to our true nature. And that when, when anybody or when any group is moving in that direction, it's a very unique experience because we, we don't, it's not part of our day-to-day life. Mm -hmm. And to take, I think it takes, you know, slowing down and being more present and, and listening and, um, it, it's sort of like not a not a ten minute thing that you you pop in between a thousand other things you're doing. I think it does become a way of life, and it becomes easier to be in a meditative space throughout the day. Um, and I think for me, the teaching of the intensives is a really good discipline um, to be really present for you know that whole that whole day, those those series of days. But it, it feels uh, that space needs to be created. Um, it doesn't sort of just happen. It, it's kind of like um, a container or um, a matrix or, a, you know, a, a source. It's, it's almost like the yin and the yang, really. The yang's the seed and it gets things fired up and gets things going, but there needs to be this safe space first. And I, I just... I think we in this polarized world that we're living in, and with the stress around coronavirus and so on, we seem we seem to be needing that more and more. So what? Do people you, are responding to it so well. Hmm. Well, so what do you? Maybe you can say a little bit more about what what you feel is important in establishing or creating a container. Well. I think there needs to be um, how I start with with my group is I get them to write me a letter before we meet and just to just to say a little bit about themselves and what draws them to, to mindfulness. And I also ask if there's been they've had any previous experience or any difficulties. And so I set up that relationship beforehand. And so a lot of what I do, you could call that screening, I suppose, but I don't. And I guess it has that, the, it, it can serve that purpose, but it's much more relational than that for me. It's setting up the connection. They can say whatever they like and they, they generally they're thrilled, especially I think in a university environment, to have that personal contact early on. So that's it starts early on, I think, and I give I have some reading before they come so they start to sort of get a, a connection with me, who I am, how I work and so on um I start from the very first day I think we start with um you know the environment of the room is really important I focus on that quite a lot in the book um so I include beautiful um Australian indigenous flowers in the room um so banksias and proteas and really wonderful rich colours, have them around the room. I have cloths, I have um, spaces, just to give that sense of a calm space. I use the same room uh, twice a year and um, I feel the room remembers me. It's quite an interesting feeling. I've inhabited that space so much that um, it's like it's been prepared. It's almost like uh, it's taken on a 
a, a sense of sanctity or or the word temenos comes to mind you know that the sacred space almost not a temple but it's 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 got a feeling about it that um seems to last in between the classes um and i go earlier i go a couple of days before and set it up so when people come into the space it is it is already prepared and set up for them and then I think it's the, there's a sort of a manner, um, you know, if people are late, um, they're welcomed. You know, I think sometimes we can be too rigid in, in you know, what time things can start. Sometimes people are lost. They've driven a long way. They've got lost. I mean, I get lost, so I can, I can identify with that. One of my students got confused about the time and he, he, he wrote in his assignment that, he he thought class started um, later than it did, and he was he was outside and he was nervous about coming in. And he said, and my lecturer um, warmly opened the door and welcomed me in, and she was dressed in white. <laughs> I don't remember that I was dressed in white, but that was <laughs> lovely. Yeah, yeah it's lovely. almost like it's this lovely feeling that he had about his teacher. Um, oh. And so all those little things, I think, do, do play a part. Um, having a sharing so they get to hear each other's stories, I think, I think that's a beautiful part that comes through in the book um, is list the women that hearing each other's stories and the diverse diversity of their stories. You know, and the amount of people that have told me when they're reading it, they feel like they're in the room. I feel like they're part of that group and I that excites me greatly because that's exactly what I wanted to to create that atmosphere. I had one woman who was doing the course while she was reading the book and she, she said it was quite funny because she got confused whether which was what was real. Right. Right. Mm. Right. Mm. I think you know, I think you write in a way that is just, you're very, just very transparent so that it's easy to close your eyes and feel like you're there. I mean, it just, it, it, it resonates. Yeah. I yeah. think what you said though, about how you sort of set up the environment mm. just makes me think of one of the underlying sort of ideals for becoming more mindful is to remember how interconnected we are and mm. how how much how much we are are all in relationship not only to each other but to our environment and i love mm. that you say that it's almost as if the room remembers you because mm. i think we mm. are very quick to turn everything into objects i agree yes yes I, that's right and so everything i do really has that relational aspect relationship to the environment to each other to ourselves and I think that's very grounding too if, if there's an emphasis on the environment because there's always something else to look at if you know if there's some internal turmoil and you know you can notice this gorgeous deep red pink flower at the other end of the room is connecting with beauty um, and and not sitting you know, being very much about everything's invitational and if you want to close your eyes, you can if we're doing a mindfulness activity, but if you don't want to, you don't have to and 
all offer all sorts of different activities so that people might connect with some and not others. I've been finding um, more external types of mindfulness have been very popular, so more sensory ones and um, Love, we do a lovely activity called Mindfulness of a Leaf and they just go out into uh, got very beautiful university grounds and they find um, bush land setting and they find choose a leaf and bring it back and just the tenderness, I think, of looking at a leaf and turning it over and feeling perhaps its vulnerability or its strength or its colour or its form. Um, so there's a kind of a, I guess it's a, a way into mindfulness I'm interested in that, that everyone can find a way into it, um, which, are, which I think connects with Thich Han's idea um, of, you know, the seed of mindfulness being within all of us. One of my favourite books is by Thich Nhat Hanh. It's Peace is Every Step. And he yeah. just talks about I'm washing the dishes and we can either be there thinking, oh, why am I washing the dishes? Why isn't one of the kids? What? You, know, you can either make up a million stories, all that cause a lot of stress, or you can, you can reflect on the fact that, look at this. I've got all this fresh water I can use to clean my dishes. There's soap. Look at the bubbles and mm. get into the scent of it. I mean, there's so much mm. to pay attention to. And I, I like what you just said about the room, how, you know, you have beautiful flowers there. And sometimes when we get into our heads and we're thinking a lot, we need something to ground us and to pull us back into. I think so. Yeah. I think so. And going outside and doing activities outside too, there's students who've never really explored the university campus and didn't realise it was so beautiful. And many of them have, have said that it's very long time since they spent 10 minutes outside by themselves. Wow. Because I think they're running from work to home to, you know, to children. One, I had a lovely student once who, for her inquiry project, she made a little video of her. She was a dance teacher and she made a video of about simulating sitting in her car because she said that was the only time she was on her own. <laughs> I remember I remember those days. You, you couldn't even go to the bathroom. Someone would toddle into the bathroom with you. So you had to literally be in a car or, you know, hiding somewhere. Yes. yes. It used to be exciting to go to the supermarket by myself and, <laughs> yes. and take a little bit longer looking at all the labels. <laughs> just, a, just a delay having to go back. Yeah. Well, it, but that's an interesting thing, too, because, you know, you've mentioned a couple of times, you know, like a, a a mom with a new baby and how, you know, there's not even time for, for them. And I think there's so much pressure on being a good mom that yeah. you're trying to like figure out what you're going to do next and, and what's going right or not, or you're reading some book on parenting or something. And so yeah. you're even just frantically going from one thing to the next. And I think there's a new baby in our family. And, and whenever he's around, I just love to watch him because he's, he just turned one a month ago and he'll just be fascinated by how the cap goes yeah. on a pen. He'll just look at that yeah. over and over and over. And I'm just like, when I can, as you said earlier, mm. when I can slow down and take in, like, mm. just look at that. He's just so many things that what happened to our fascination with all of these things. Yes, I think so. A bit, things seem to have become very 
instrumental and, um, you know, measured and managed and um, it seems to be um, less room for spontaneity and play. So I I think mindfulness is an opportunity to actually to create that one of the chapters is called Making Space for Mindfulness and that's, the, you know, the first main chapter really. And I think that's that's a really good starting point to even, you know, even if you just lie down and have a nap in the afternoon, maybe that's your mindfulness. Right. That's right. So now whenever I'm with this little sweet little 13-month-old, that's that I don't meditate on those days. You know, I have a regular meditation yeah. practice, but though on yeah. those days, I'm, I meditate when he falls asleep while I'm holding him, or yeah. I, or I have, you know, five minutes here and five minutes there. When I, when I catch myself mm-hmm. noticing how in awe he is. Yeah. Hit another thing he loves, just a pile of rocks that we took off the beach. He'll just look at each one of them, throw them in the bucket, and then he looks to see. Did you see me look at the rock? Did you see the? Yeah. And it's just so. I liked that in your book, and you, you have a lot of examples of exercises and things that people can do. Mm. And you you talk about things that you do in this this account of this this mm. program you did with these women. One of my favorite ones that you did was when you had uh, women look at these um, pieces of art, and I oh, yes. I loved the the directions. I think I think you maybe referenced Ellen Langer or someone. Oh yes. Yes, about her work. Yes. I love that idea that shows someone a piece of art and let them come up with their own title and just yeah. see what they notice before there's any discussion yeah. about the style or the time period or anything at all. Just what do you see? Yes. No, since when nobody asks us anymore, like, what do you no. see? It's so simple her idea of this and that you you give your own name to a painting instead of first going to the plaque and so I I do that every year now we have a mindfulness in the museum luckily we have an art museum on campus Um, and that's just been quite amazing really to be able to do that and a lot of students have written about noticing I think it's Ellen Langer's noticing is a very accessible way into mindfulness. So she talks about noticing the the new and the novel and different. And, you know, she says that that's why we love travelling because we're always noticing something fresh and new and novel and that that really brings us into the present. So it's very accessible. It's, you know, it's not sort of esoteric and yet people can have quite deep and profound experiences through through tuning in in that way. Yep, but it's interesting how she's not often, in, she's not always included in, in the mindfulness world. She, she has said she was very hurt when she, all the, the big mindfulness people were invited to do keynotes at this big conference and she wasn't invited. Uh, but I think she's made a really significant contribution and her, her own artwork too. I don't know if you've seen any of her paintings. No, I, I they just they're just absolutely fabulous. She brings mindfulness into her. She isn't a trained painter, and she took it up, I think, in her sixties. And um, she's really quite funny. She wanted to draw, do a painting of her and her friend, and the idea was she was going to draw them sitting in in silence together. But she said she ended up painting them with her talking because she loves to talk, and it just happened that 
she was talking and and the painting's beautiful because the women's feet are really close together as they talk mm-hmm. and the colors and the forms and there's a and really lovely quality to her painting that's very heartfelt and I guess for her being a psychology professor at Harvard and all the rest of it, she probably felt like she wanted to nourish that other part of herself too. You know, very bright woman and extremely well published. But and then there's this whole other side of her with the painting. Right. Right. And um yeah, I'm just now I'm just flashing back to when you you were talking earlier about Ian Cushman. Um, maybe this was before we even recorded, but about how like she's rushing to teach a yoga class and (laughs) and she's like a mad woman rushing to all the pressure of the of like the the world and everything and then you know you have to collect yourself and then take on this this, get back Mm. into your spiritual Mm. sense and I think that's one of the challenges and one of the things that I think if you know empowering mindfulness for women and and for men too is like how you can navigate this like doesn't have to be so formal it doesn't and no. it can, you know, it, it, there needs to be like, if you don't, if you don't meditate, you can't sit and meditate for half an hour every day that I don't think that means you're not becoming a more mindful person. No, I, I agree. And for, for different people, I've, I've talked to lots of people who, who have had powerful experiences, but they didn't actually realize that's what they were. You know, maybe they were sitting in nature and, you know, I'd probably see it as quite a mystical experience, but to them they didn't really know what it was and didn't realise it was even connected with mindfulness and meditation. The kind of natural experiences that people can have, um, you know, I've had women say to me, what you're talking about, I experienced that when I was giving birth, you know, and for someone else it might be in lovemaking or, you know, in breastfeeding or, um, you know, sport and all sorts of things. And I, I liked it in Altan's notion or two of whatever we do mindfully is mindfulness and perhaps that's a liberating way to look at it too because, like you said about the dishes, cooking, it doesn't have to be a set practice. I mean, I, th- I think there's a, there's a time for some disciplined practice certainly and but it doesn't have to um you can vary you can have periods in your life where you do have the discipline practice and periods where you don't i think you can we can get stuck in techniques and it's good actually to have a break from techniques or try different practices um you know i come back to to certain meditation teachers after you know a few years away and come really come back and reconnect with them um arena tweedy i don't know if you know her oh, amazing um she went to uh, to be in retreat basically for years with a a sufi uh, meditation teacher in um in india she was a um theosophist um english theosophist and just she went in her 50s and it just transformed her life and she became a major teacher too and I just I come back to her every few years um and her meditation was through with sitting with her teacher as well rather than specific techniques 
you know, being with him and noticing what was arising in her and and trusting what was arising in her. Um, and he would, you know, at times he seemed harsh because he would reject her or she would turn up at his place and he'd say, no, you cannot come now, and there would be all this emotion. Um, she's quite interesting, Arena Tweedy, because she talks about um, women's and men's spiritual paths being different that, in her view, women start off further, further down the track than men, but they don't often don't um, give themselves enough time to really focus on their own development, perhaps because they don't necessarily see how that's important or they're looking after everybody else. Um, and so she feels that our attachment to um, nice things and to family um, it's a, it can hold us back in our development. And so sometimes, you know, the men might, um, I think sometimes men quite like very disciplined forms of meditation that, that, you know, they see themselves as kind of conquering the mountain or something like some kind of sports. And perhaps for some men it's about coming back and being in that more relational space. And perhaps for women we've had a lot of the relational space and, and maybe a bit more of that yang focus on ourselves um, and our own progression, um, depending on our depending on our goals. I mean, it's it's different for everybody, isn't it? But I think for me, having a taste of working with a powerful teacher, really powerful teacher, did set me off on a a path of um, um, seeing mindfulness as more than a you know one retreat or um, a community mindfulness class or something. It, 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 to me, it's potentially just so incredibly transformative. Yeah, I, I I agree, and I think that I think there's a lot of women who, and I think you 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 mentioned this in your book, and you said this earlier, that when they try to have a more formal practice, they and this happens. This this is my ongoing struggle. Is I sit there and I'm trying to just slow down give myself some time to just be, to practice letting things go and being present. And I, my automatic thoughts, my monkey mind goes right to all the things I need to do. This person needs that. And I didn't call this person. Mm -hmm. And I start worrying about people I might be disappointing, or I'm going to be later behind on this. And did I forget that? Mm -hmm. And I just, and, you know, my teacher slash mentor told me, well, then that's your task to just sit there for as long as if you're going to sit for 10 mm. minutes or five minutes or 20, when, sit there and just sit with that. Learn to let that be something you're aware of that you don't have to do anything about. Just learn to just, and over time, I started to realize I could get through that. There was a part of me, it was always pulling me back off the mm. cushion and just realizing that I wasn't going to be able to get any further unless I let go of my perceived demands that every, that so many people needed things from me. And that, that in yeah. fact was also part we're, of it. We're brought up to, to, um, you know, and I think what's happened in the professions is that we're kind of doing the same thing as we used to do in families, or we're doing both because a lot of us are in professions, help the helping professions. So there's, we're extending what our mothers did in the home 
and we're probably still doing some of the home stuff as well and in our jobs. And I do notice the difference in the university between the men and the women. Um, I think in, in, the, in general, I think I see my women colleagues working very, very, very hard. And I see them responding with fuller emails. The, the fellows seem to be, it seems to be okay for them to be more minimalist. Um, I read some re I read some interesting research that students tend to actually um, ask for remarks and ask for more feedback, more of their women lecturers, or women lecturers than men. Um, so we end up giving ourselves more work because we're kind and, you know, caring and... I think so. That is part of being mindful is, is yes. being more aware, more tuned to nature, to That's, our to yes. our own moods, our own feelings, but to the effects that we have on other people and mm -hmm. the 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 needs or the desires in other people. There, I think, in a way, women are, you know, maybe have have benefited from from that aspect. And I think for men, you know, and, you know, it's interesting, my husband now meditates, he's, he started after going to a retreat with me, but he, I know, works a lot on just loving kindness, you know, just sitting mm -hmm. there and remembering, you know, to, that he can be a loving, kind person and just remembering that that's an important aspect of life too, that it's not all mm. about being right or being the smartest or the best or the fastest. Yes. And that's yes. the pressure on men. And I mean, my heart goes out to them too. And I think so. there's something lovely about a student seeing the opportunity in a female professor to possibly yes. get a little bit more relational. I think, I, I think, I think there is. It's it's just that I see the challenges in my colleagues around publishing and teaching, and it's just it's just hard. I think. Well, because because we all have it. the same amount of time, and so you have mm. to sometimes choose: Am I going to take time and give feedback to this student, or am mm. I going to work on you know the draft my of journal this article? article? <laughs> And that's why yeah. it's not, you know, this is where I think someone was saying mm -hmm. to you, you know, it, it goes back to the pedagogy, like what, what and who sets the standards. And I, I think yeah. that's, that spirit comes out in the book and in terms of empowering mindfulness for women and mm. sort of empowering women for and mindfulness. And what's been so, so lovely, and it wasn't, wasn't anticipated at all what has been so lovely is the way my um, men's students have been responding I was a little bit concerned when I put the the book up that you know they could access if they wanted to that men might feel excluded by the title um but they don't seem to have it's really funny I mean if it was the other way around if it was empowering mindfulness for men would women feel excluded I you know, quite a few of them have been writing in their assignments. Well, um, you know that that Lee or Dr. Burrows or whatever um, makes this point about women, but I also feel this in myself, and that they're wanting to connect more with their yin side, their softer side. Their, you know, a lot of them are they've got, you know, working partners. They're they're having families. They're facing you know, many of the same pressures, there's more expectations on them to help do more in the house. 
they're more present with um, their partners in the, the births of their children and, you know, there's a, I think there's a, a lovely, um, I probably, I've probably got about 10 assignments this time from men that I just, I really want to go back to them and say, you know, is it, can I use some of your words in my next book? Because I've been really blown away by this. And I, I do wonder if they would write that more for a female lecturer. Um, and it's not that, and it wasn't necessarily said in class, it was in writing. And I, I do, because I've been looking into some of the, um, the mindfulness for men, and it still seems to have this performative aspect in it, some of it anyway. What I've seen so far, it seems to be men getting together and kind of um, there seems to be quite a lot of activity that they, they engaged in and not a lot of stillness, and maybe that's, that's suitable. But this quieter element seems to be creating space for both men and women to to be um, like I think you said before about your true your true nature something deeper than the the um, you know the egoic or the the role the job you've got. Right. It makes me think of where you started, where you talked about that group coming together in this spontaneous discussion about self, no self, and mm. that that kind of thing. Because when we're identifying ourselves as as a separate self that's when we feel the pressure to as a separate self what do you have to show for yourself you know what mm, what have yeah. you accomplished what have you done where if we can come back to our true nature which is connected and part of a group and mm. you know, everybody's in it together there's less pressure to compete i think i think there is it's it's this i think it's this lovely balancing where each individual is is acknowledged for their individuality and for being in the group um there's a, a writer on buddhism and i cannot can't remember her name i've quoted her in the book but her name escapes me right now but she talks about the no self question for women is interesting because we weren't meant to really have an individual self we've kind of only just got one so maybe we're not quite ready to had to fight for one <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and not very long ago really you know you I think when we were chatting before you mentioned uh the feminist aspect of the book stood out to you and um I was really pleased to hear that yeah absolutely that the you know just the the experience of having to sort of straddle both worlds and stay in yes. relationship with other, other people and also be in relationship with yourself. That, that was yes. part of it. Like the self got given away in, in the effort to just be available for everyone else. Yeah. And there has to be, yeah. like you said, there has to be the, some balance between both of those things, you know, that. And sort of having a, I feel like, you know, for me in my journey, I, um, my mother wanted me to have a really good education and she, she saw, I think, having a good education and a good job would be a kind of a way out of what she saw as her limiting life as an intelligent woman who didn't work, didn't drive, um, you know, really didn't, have the opportunity to live her life to the fullest and 
And so I think I took on some of the the more driven side of my father to be successful. Dad used to say, scores on the board, girl, but count. And I think I took that on a little bit too much, really. Although not until I was older. It wasn't it was wasn't until my 30s and and he said something like, Well, think how far you could have gone if it started earlier. <laughs> you know, as if life is a race. But but it was important to me to to achieve, I guess, and and maybe I, I don't think I could have written this book unless I got to the point where, you know, I had my PhD, I had my tenure, um, you know, I've there's a number of things I've done that I can feel pleased that I've done and then now I think the challenge for me is to, to be continue to be even more trusting of my true nature and of what, what is within me and because I feel that I'm a vehicle for bringing something through and it's trusting that and and allowing that to happen whilst still, um, you know, honouring my my employer and my role and my salary and um, keeping that, that's a little bit of a balancing act, I think, because I'm quite passionate about teaching and I love teaching in higher education. Um, I think it would suit me... Um, better than teaching mindfulness in a community setting. So I want to keep doing it, but I want to be part of, um, you know, a change towards higher education, being more relational and more personal and holistic and so on. And, you know, people people see me taking the flowers into the rooms and my colleagues say, oh, we all want to come and do your courses, Lee. And, you know, they know there's something something in this way of teaching. Right. And I, I think that's, that's the part that I like to say, why can't we bring more of the feminine to the traditional masculine? Why? Absolutely. Why do we need to like bow out of something? Because we can do very well in that realm as well. We, as long as we don't lose our lose our feminine self in the process absolutely yeah yeah that's been really I think the challenge for me Mm -hmm. um and it's 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 still not easy I mean I find grading and working on the computer all the time and some of those things are very tiring and so there's a need for that replenishment of um the core my core and you mentioned being with a new little person in the family. We have some little people in our family too. And I was spent three hours with little Pippi the other day. She's two and a half. And we just played tea sets and um, a little bit of music and some stories. And um, it was just magic just to be sit with her in the same room and not come out and check my emails be really with her it was absolutely was a meditation yeah yeah and it, it just again a chance to like i think our true nature is to use our imagination to mm-hmm. you know use our capacity to plan and to like evaluate those things are those are very helpful too but we do mm-hmm. those at the price of you I know so. imagining and being creative and being caring and thoughtful you know, and yes. I was telling you, I was fortunate to take a course with Carol Gilligan years ago. And, mm-hmm. you know, how 
it doesn't require that we give up in order to participate. We can just find a way to bring the feminine yes. into the more traditional and just make space for that. And I, I guess, you know, this is happening around you too. It's becoming a bit tricky to use the language of feminine and masculine, um, which is why I thought yin and yang was going to be very inclusive because if we've got people, transgender people and so on, um, right. people who have been buying the different gender, it, it starts to become quite complex. That's right. And, you know, some women don't identify with that word feminine. Absolutely. Um, yep, absolutely. Yes. And, and, and that's, that was one of the things that in her earlier research, Carol Gilligan was talked about was that women though would make adjustments more easily like oh sorry as soon as somebody yes. objects yes. they say oh i think about it more quick to shift and incorporate another yeah. perspective and yeah. that's i think you know kind of what i'm thinking is traditionally men have been more rigid and, and not i don't think because they want to be but i think no. they get conditioned into that you know into that role um but you make a really good point and I know we all have to be more aware and remember the language we use is can, yeah. be, can really leave people out and and it can pull, become polarized. we can say something that we didn't actually intend to mm -hmm. be hurtful and it you know when social media there can be so many right misunderstandings and I feel you know I'm more comfortable myself I feel like I'm really inhabiting this yin yang kind of approach now where I can feel my inner yin is really the, the softer, um, you know, more spiritual, more profound, um, you know, there's, so, there's just so much there. And then the yang is more my getting out in the world and doing stuff, which is, you know, really strong too. But getting that balance right in myself rather than me thinking, I think, I think the masculine and feminine thing can can be. Um, I'll always be uncomfortable with my masculine side. I think I felt that I um, I shouldn't be so out there in the world. Sometimes I used to think probably because I had this very this uh, such a polarized time in my twenties, home meditating, being a, a hippie, barefoot mum, and home birth, and that whole thing. And I made such a strong change that I don't think I integrated those two parts of myself. So that's actually a nice place to end because I think that's a part of what this book is about. Mm, integrating. It is. Yeah. Integrating those parts and, and integrating a whole range of ways of approaching having a mindful life. And that it is a process. It's not a, I'd go and do this course and it's kind of done. It's got these levels and layers and unfolding. And well. it requires making space, if, if not time. I mean, if time yeah. is up short, you can just, you can create some space for it, even in your ordinary day. That's right. Yeah, I think that really comes through in the book with the women that have all managed to do that in some way or other. And they've got some lovely experiences to share. Right, right. Mm. Even, even, you know, when you, when you talk in there about how 
it's not doesn't always feel as accessible for women because they they are so quick to deal with their their monkey minds you know their that worry worry you know what mm. women even you know you hear mothers even when they're in a relationship with another woman or man who's really completely co-parenting they very often one of them will feel like oh but i'm the one worrying about the doctor's appointments and yeah. the new shoes and and yeah. so there's my that, daughter says that yeah there's like the emotional weight of something that you know it'll 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 get evened out at some point but but yes, this book does a lot to kind of, I think, bring those issues up and give people, like you said, a chance to feel that, you know, you can, you can read the book and feel like you're getting a bit of this experience too, which yeah. is a, a real gift. And it's, it's okay to have ambivalence and messiness. And... That's right. That is the true nature of things, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the true absolutely. nature of the, I mean, birth itself is messy and painful and chaotic and and amazing and enlightening and cosmic and you know so many different things for different people yeah all Mm. of those things all of those things well gosh well thank you so much for taking this time and and talking with me so listeners can hear a little bit more about you and about the book um before i let you go i'm just wondering is there a website you like to refer people to or um yes i there's my university website there's um all my papers are on the research gate website and i've also got a blog called mindfulness dreaming oh wonderful um so um that's some um, that's just started that recently okay uh, i, I think this that. might be the title of my new book bringing a more imaginal um, approach to mindfulness it's really bringing out that more yin side lovely lovely mm. so you let me know when that's about to come yes. out and maybe we can connect again and talk about that oh fantastic and thank you so much you've been so delightful to have a conversation with very easy and natural it's been it's been thank my you. pleasure thank you